NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is the next sheriff of a beautiful little town called Parts Unknown. He is the captain. Let me see your hands, boy. Let me see your hands. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Tonight in the garage, we are drinking Huntsman Red Ale by Barley Moe Brewing Company, garage grade four and a quarter out of five bottle caps the sheriff approves this is an imperial double red ale that is not only hoppy and malty but also smooth and sweet and has a very beautiful red color and huntsman red ale was brought to us by first up where else captain but in the beautiful little town of parts unknown spread them we have lori and bonnie and jeanette as well looks like it looks like all of you can spread them. It looks like the land parcels are filling up in parts unknown. I'm selling a lot of tents. Next, we have Denise, who says that this is a five-star podcast. Yeah. Well, thank you, Denise, for grading on a curve. And if you'd like to leave us a five-star review, go over to iTunes and treat yourself. And this next one is from Lynn, who says, lots of love from Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm, much love to you. And last but not least, also a very big thank you to Raquella in Minneapolis, who is celebrating a birthday this month. So happy, happy, happy birthday. Thank you all for pitching in for this week's beer fun. And if you want to buy us around for next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. Like yo, Jim. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, any of that stuff, at True Crime Garage. Do you have any new music for us, Captain? Yeah. Some people keep asking me, uh, who did the music on that one? It's the captain. It's that's, still the captain. That's my job. Well, that's enough of the business. Let's get to the trailer. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. There's anybody else out there at first. We were just like I said, goofing off. Uh, and uh, we come up on, or didn't really come up on, we noticed there were people on the track. So a flashlight come on and then go back off. They weren't looking in our direction, but we could see the light. And so we kind of quieted down and snuck up a little bit closer to see what was going on. And there was five individuals uh, standing on the tracks. One thing that struck my curiosity is, uh, at the time, my mother was dating uh, an attorney named Dan, uh, Dan Harmon. I, I knew him well enough to recognize him. There were uh, two more individuals that, uh, a few minutes after we got there, uh, were walking down the railroad tracks. They had a rifle uh, and what looked to be a flashlight. They were more or less kind of minding their own business. Uh, and when they realized someone else was on the tracks, uh, they stopped and was fixing to turn around when someone uh, or Danny motioned for him to come closer uh, over to where they were. Uh, they hesitated and 
eventually ended up uh, walking on towards the rest of the group. While my head was turned, I heard a, what sounded like a gunshot, a soft flash, as you would expect with a gunshot at night. We were pretty much terrified and bolted and ran. Other witnesses corroborated that evidence. This is part two of the Boys on the Tracks case. Captain, should we do a little recap? Last time on True Crime Garage. In the early morning hours of August 23rd, 1987, this is in Bryant, Arkansas, two boys were laying motionless on the train tracks, Mm -hmm. and they were passed over by the train. The investigation of their deaths falls into the jurisdiction of the Saline County Sheriff's Office. Now, that investigation has been called botched at best. And where it picks up from there, the medical examiner, this is Fami Malik, Mm -hmm. he takes over the case. And he has to investigate his ruling on the cause of the boys' deaths. He's going to claim that the boys were high on marijuana and they passed out on the train tracks. Then the train came and ran the boys over and that's the cause of death. Ruling it an accidental death. You're exactly correct. (laughs) Exactly. So the parents of the two boys are obviously dissatisfied with the sheriff's investigation as well as the medical examiner's findings. So they schedule a press conference. And it's after this press conference that a grand jury is established and the grand jury decides that they review the, they review the evidence and they decide that the cause of death might not be accidental, that it's a possible homicide. And they're going to call for a second autopsy. After the grand jury successfully got the latest autopsy, this was conducted by well-renowned pathologist, Dr. Burton. Now remember he was from out of state. He was actually from Atlanta because they they needed not only fresh eyes on this, but they needed someone that would not have connections locally or at the state level. But also at the time, Atlanta and Dr. Burton had access to better technology. This is going to change their findings of the death not being accidental, but by being murdered. Yes. Let's let's say correcting. Right. Because mm-hmm. they, they just got it wrong from the beginning. So from a possible homicide to a definite homicide. And because the grand jury and the change in the correcting of the rulings of death, the investigation was then transferred to the jurisdiction of the Arkansas State Police. I say that because it's not only important to the telling of this story, but in today's episode, we will be reviewing some statements that have been taken from the Arkansas State Police files from their investigation into the murders of 16-year-old Don Henry and 17-year-old Kevin Ives. This new investigation team has an uphill battle because from the get-go it should have been investigated as a homicide, but it wasn't. And they didn't do the due diligence, and it was disinvestigated as a traffic death. Correct. And we even discussed items that they failed to collect at the scene that may have had value towards pointing towards any kind of, of evidence. And before we get to the timeline, we need to kind of discuss what was going on in the drug community in this town. Cocaine and other drugs were flowing into the city of Little Rock, Arkansas, and the smaller communities that surrounded it as well. Uh, This is coming from Central America via the freeways that connected Miami, Los Angeles, and Dallas. But they were coming in by all forms of transportation by the time of 1987. Mm -hmm. The movers would place cocaine on trains, and it would be dropped at designated drop spots. This was also coming in by airplane as well. And not too far from the tracks where the boys were found, there's an airport called the Mena Airport. And this was known by many to be trafficking drugs. Planes were landing near the airport under the cover of night without using their lights. They were landing, sitting briefly, and taking off again without cutting off their engines. Mm -hmm. The state police was aware that this was going on. So to combat this... They started parking vehicles near the airport. Well, the airplane started adjusting what they were doing. They picked out different locations, and now rather than landing, they were just kind of buzzing the fields, getting real low, about 100 feet off the ground, and dropping things from the planes. Obviously, we have Kevin Ives and we have Don Henry. Those are the two boys that were found on the tracks. But now let's get into some of the other key players. 
Yes, the first person that we will introduce is a man by the name of Jeff Rhodes. He's a young man that was interviewed by investigator Don Birdsong. And this is from the state police files, Birdsong's report. This is with an interview with a young man that Birdsong does not identify in his notes. But his notes state that the Wednesday before the boys were killed, someone had contacted this man looking to buy an ounce of cocaine. This being possibly Rhodes, the buyer. This guy was unable to obtain the cocaine, so he contacted Don Henry. Don and Kevin met with the buyer, and they said that they could get coke from Don's connections. Mm -hmm. Now, this connection is not mentioned as well. Well, and mind you that Don Henry was 16 years old at this time. In another interview with the state police, this is with Don Henry's sister, Gayla. Gayla stated that Don had been at the home of an alleged drug dealer to purchase marijuana on the Thursday or Friday before he was killed. Mm -hmm. She had also heard Don say that he knew, quote, the ultimate dealer, unquote. He didn't give a name to this person, but he said that the dealer worked out of Little Rock, Arkansas. Well, we have evidence that the boys were smoking pot, so they got to get that from somebody. Mm -hmm. I've been on pot runs, Mm -hmm. right? So you go into the house. Just because the guy sells, maybe all he does is sell pot, but he might sell other things. In another statement, this is from Chris Ballard, who was at one time married to Don's sister. He says that he saw Don on the Thursday before Don's death. Don said that he was going to steal some cocaine. Chris also said that Don had mentioned something about this ultimate guy working out of Little Rock, Arkansas. In one of the investigator's notes, this is investigator Don Birdsong, these were entered into the file in the summer of 1989, and this is in regards to a conversation with a confidential informant stating that Don and Kevin had overheard a phone call between the dealer and an unidentified individual about a large drug drop near the area of the train tracks. Sergeant Barney Phillips interviewed a friend of Don and Kevin's and said that the night that they had died, he was at a party at a mobile home and the two of them dropped by. Before leaving this party, he said that they had told him that they were going to go get some cocaine so they could sell it and make a bunch of money. Now let's introduce Keith Coney. Keith Coney is a young man. He's an acquaintance of Don and Kevin's. Keith's mother, Betty Alexander, reported to a drug task force officer that her son had told her that he knew something about the Ives and Henry deaths, but he wouldn't explain to her what. Now, Keith would go on and tell his father and some of his friends that he had been out that night with... Well, unless, you know, not to interrupt, but he was pretty close with his mother. Mm -hmm. He was afraid to tell her. Correct. Yes. Like, like severely afraid. But in a moment... And he, I think he was afraid to tell his father as well. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like he just came out with this information old willy-nilly. No, he wasn't just running around town telling anybody that would listen. Uh, this was something that he was, it was burning inside of him, but he was afraid to talk about it. But I also think possibly, you know, having been in that father role, that if, if my son, or, you know, my stepson would have said, I know something, mm-hmm. but I don't want to tell you, I would have made him tell me, mm-hmm. you know, because, because I can't. I can't try to protect you if I don't, I don't know what you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, Keith had told his father and he had told some friends that he had been out that night with Don and Kevin, this being the night of their deaths. And he stated that they were out near Shobe Road uh, where they were approached by two police officers in a vehicle. Okay. Now, at this time, Keith is on his motorcycle at this point, And he states that he fled the scene. And he believed that the boys were attacked and possibly killed by those two police officers. So so he saw them being attacked and he fled the attack. Yeah, he was he was hanging out with the two boys. And as the officers approached, he, he took off. He got out of there. Months after having telling his father about the story involving the police, Keith Coney's mother, Betty Alexander, she's at the local prison visiting her other son, Eugene Coney. Now, while she's there, she meets a man by the name of Mike Crook. Mike Crook is a former manager of Gigi's, which is a nightclub on the county line. Mike had told Betty about a Gigi's customer who frequented the club, 
and an incident that the customer had said he had seen at a small grocery store near Shrobe Road. This is located in the general area of the train tracks where the boys were found. On the night of their deaths, he was parked at the store close to the railroad tracks waiting for his wife. That's what this statement says. There's actually another statement that says he believed that his wife was running around on him. So he had parked there hoping to catch her in the act of being with a boyfriend or being with another man. Could you imagine just sitting out in a parked dark car waiting for your significant other to possibly be with somebody else? I wouldn't waste my time. Yeah, I think that's that's good <laughs> I advice. I wouldn't waste my time. Well, while the man is there, and Crook will refer to this man as Jerry, and he says that Jerry saw three teenagers. One of them was on a motorcycle. And then he saw two officers arrive at the scene. These boys were there smoking pot is what he believed that they were doing. So one could assume that that is Keith Cooney on his motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And that is also Don and Kevin. And they're all kind of hanging out, smoking a little pot. Yes. Yes. Crook would say that Jerry does not identify the boys by name. But he did, in telling Crook this story, he did say, I believe that two of those boys could have been the boys that were found that night. Well, right, but this is just proving that his story makes a lot of sense with Keith's story. Mm -hmm. Jerry then sees what he believes to be a police car pull up. And at this time, he says that one of the boys hops on the motorcycle and takes off. Now, some kind of interaction goes badly between these police officers and the two remaining boys. Mm -hmm. And he sees that an altercation breaks out. And during the course of this, he basically says that he sees the police officers beating the shit out of the remaining two boys. And afterwards, they throw the kids into the back of the patrol car. The man, Jerry, he tells Crook this story back at Gigi's nightclub at some point. And after discussing the story, Crook tells him, you know what? That's probably, you're probably right. Those are probably the two boys that were found that night. And you really should report this. Now, Jerry was a little hesitant to do so because he saw police officers, what he believed to be police officers, you know, abusing some citizens. Right, right. And so he convinces Jerry to report this. Jerry does go and report this situation to the sheriff's office. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jerry is immediately thrown in jail. Uh, He's thrown in jail for back child support. And they keep him in jail for the mandatory sentence of 90 days that he was to serve. After the 90 days, this Jerry person immediately leaves town. Now, why do we keep referring to him as Jerry? Well, it's because Crook in the statement refused to name the guy. Right. Just stating that his name was Jerry and he looked he looked kind of Mexican was the best description that he would give about regarding Jerry. Yeah, well, I think his real name was Sketchy Jerry. Well, we're going to follow that up with another statement. And this is from a man named Ronnie Godwin. Now, Ronnie Godwin, according to his statement, he had been at Gigi's nightclub uh, for about three or four hours the night that the boys had passed away. This is a happening place. He said that he had had seven or eight beers there before he left, and he left around midnight. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he was driving home, he was driving down Highway 5. He turned down County Line Road, uh, and then he turned right onto 111. As he approached Shrobe Road... He saw an unmarked police car. He said it was either tan or gray, but it had three antennas, police hubcaps, and spotlights on it. Uh, instead of turning right onto Shrub Road toward which, his home. Wait, hold on. Which could be like a detective car. Yes. You yes. Because a lot of times, like we, we live in a pretty small town. And when you see, well, well I do, you live north, but um, you grew up here and- you know, you see these cars, you have your, your, the police cruisers, mm-hmm. and then sometimes you have the sheriff cars or you have, like, maybe a chief of police car. But then you also have these detective cars. Mm-hmm. They're pretty easy to spot. Tented windows, a bunch of uh, an- antennas. Yeah. Well, after seeing the vehicle, he decided to go straight to avoid being noticed instead of turning towards going to his home. Mm-hmm. He had been drinking, obviously, that night. He said seven or eight beers. And he was concerned that he was going to get another DWI had they spotted him. He would eventually park his car and shut off his lights. But when he was near Shrobe Road, Dark canoe. he saw two cops with two boys. Uh, his first thought was that the police may have caught some boys trying to break into the store that was in the area. 
one of the boys was described as being taller than the other and more heavy set. And this boy had light colored hair. Uh, this boy had been shoved up against the phone booth by a larger cop. We can assume at this point the teenager that they're pushing up against this pole would be Don Henry. Mm-hmm. He, during this altercation, he believes that he sees one of the teenagers being hit with something in the head. And this was near a phone booth, so he wasn't certain if it would have been the receiver from the phone mm-hmm. uh, that would be, would have been from the phone booth, or if it would have been a larger item. It's you know it's dark out. He's got his lights off, uh, but he sees the one boy being hit in the head. And remember, in the autopsy was the whole uh, skull fractures. Mm-hmm. And he also says that he did not believe or did not see the boys to be resisting in any form. That that these guys were just going after. These kids, right? These guys were just getting their ass kicked. Mm -hmm. The second boy he saw, uh, there was an officer standing over the other teenage boy who Mm -hmm. was kneeling and on the ground, but he had his head down and he couldn't really make out whom the kid was. After this all took place, he said that he saw the two officers throw the boys into the back seat of their vehicle. He then sees one of the officers grab what he believes to be a rifle and throw it into the car as well. The officers then get into the vehicle and they take off. He says that they make a turn and he noticed that they went onto a road that, that is a dead end. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lost track of their lights. So at some point he believes that they may have turned off to the left. He was obviously concerned about this situation uh, and a bit scared, but he's still also watching out for himself. He's still worried about that possible DWI. Right. And so he decides that since nobody noticed him there, he knew that these officers would have to turn around at some point because it was a dead end. And he was worried that they could come out at any second. So he decided to still lay low there. And he said, it's probably about 15 or 20 minutes went by before he sees the vehicle drive by again. He did not notice if the boys were still in the vehicle at this point. Ronnie Goodwin estimated that all this took place around 2 or 2.30 a.m. that night, the night that the boys were found on the tracks. Right Now, this is interesting here, Captain. We have a couple of stories that seem to be lining up with one another. We have, we have their friend Keith Cooney, who states that he left because police officers drove up scared him off and he believed that there something happened right, between the police officers and the and the boys. Yeah, at least a confrontation. Mm-hmm. So we have that story. Then we have the unknown Jerry person. Mm-hmm. And then we have this Ron Goodwin come well, forward. Shady Jerry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well the thing here is the state the state police officers, uh, during their investigation, they believed because this Ronnie Goodwin story was so similar to the story of this unknown Jerry person mm-hmm. that who get that, his name right that had moved out of the area they believed that Jerry and Ronnie Godwin were one of the same and the thing here is when they approached crook and and they asked him you know here here's the guy that we believe this Jerry person is can you confirm this or deny it right he states very matter of factly this is not the person that I'm talking about right. this is I, I still refuse to give his name but this is not the person that, that I was describing. In a sense, it's almost like they're trying to minimize the idea that there was police officers involved. You know what I mean? Like, well, we got three stories right now that they all kind of line up. But uh, we're, we're thinking that, you know, guy A and guy C are the same. So yeah. really only have two stories that line up. Or possibly it could be the exact opposite, though. Maybe they're trying to corroborate this Godwin story. Right. And, 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 and just go to him and say, okay, now we know you told somebody else about this and we believe you even more. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I mean, it really could go either way, which does make some sense because he was coming from the bar. Mm-hmm. So that would, you know, put two and two together. Yeah, there, there's a lot of things that line up there, but there's probably more than one person leaving that bar that night. Correct. Yeah. Well, now we have three stories. So let's get to the fourth story. This is going to come to us by Tom Newhouse, not to be confused by Tom Oldhouse. But this is the guy that was hiding in the bushes. Tom Newhouse is not introduced into this whole thing until around 1993. Mm-hmm. This is when a friend of Kevin Ives reaches out to Linda. And he says that he knows a boy that's now 18 in 1993 
uh, that had seen some things that took place that night. And he wanted to put her in contact with this boy. This boy didn't want to talk to anybody. But he thought that maybe if Linda talked to him, that he would he would feel the urge to come forward with this information, having meeting one of the one of the victims. So he puts the two of them in touch together. Well, meeting the victim's mother, correct. Right. And so Tom Tom tells the story that he is out the night that the boys are found, and he was out with a couple of his friends. They were out in the area of the tracks, and they were looking for marijuana plants, and they were goofing around and just you know just kind of being out in the middle of the night, you know, doing weird stuff. Well, yeah, well, and we kind of talked about this, like when we're kids, the whole thing was, especially around the summertime, was you might, if you could camp out out Mm -hmm. in the backyard, that you might go like do some pranks, right? You might uh, toilet paper somebody's house, you might pee in somebody's mailbox, stuff like that. Uh, Inappropriate, not nice stuff, but the the best was... it's good for the toilet paper manufacturers. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, good and bad. But, uh... But it was always weird to me. Is like you'd be walking to the neighborhood and you might have a couple buddies with you. And then all of a sudden you see another group of people from your high school and they're out doing the same thing. <laughs> did, that, did that ever happen with you? Once. Happened once. Yeah, but it like freaks you out. So kind of s- similar thing where you have this one group of boys out. We're, we're not for sure what they're doing yet. Mm-hmm. They claim that they're hunting. Mm-hmm. And then you got this other set of kids out and they're maybe looking for a pot, just kind of looking around. Yeah, well, and you know what happens, Captain, if you're out at night and you're a kid in the dark and you see some lights, headlights or a light turn on, you, you what do you do? You duck and you hide. Mm-hmm. And these kids, Tom and these other kids, they see, Tom would have been 12 at the time, right. and they see a light and they decide to duck down and they're going to kind of observe what's going on. And they see three men on the tracks and he, he very outwardly describes these guys as men. Uh, and during this time, he also sees two other figures approaching. Now, Tom and the other kids, they kind of move up and try to get a little closer to the situation to see what's going on. Now they're intrigued, right? And he sees that the men are trying to engage the other two figures. They're kind of calling out to them and telling them to come over and talk to them. This is the boy that we heard in the trailer. Correct. Yeah. And he says that the boys seem... He describes these other two figures as as not grown men, as possible teenagers. Mm-hmm. He states that the teenagers didn't seem to be, they didn't want to go over and talk to the men. They were very reluctant to do so. At some point, though, they get must have been convinced to do so because then they start walking over towards the men. Now, at this point, Tom is ducking down and he's kind of hiding because he sees several flashlights at the time. And he hears what he believes to be a gunshot mm-hmm. go off. Like he said in the trailer, he kind of looked away. Mm-hmm. And then, but he also saw the flash of the gun. Saw the flash of light. Now, he cannot say whether that gunfire came from the teenage boys or from the three men that he had already seen on the tracks. Mm-hmm. What he does say, though, is as soon as they hear that, him and his friends decide to take off and flee the area. Well, and the thing is that he recognizes one of the guys on the tracks. Yes. And and why does he recognize one of them? Well, I, he claims that his mother was seeing an attorney in town, mm-hmm. and that attorney was on the train tracks. And that man is Dan Harmon. And where do we know that name from, Captain? Well, he was the prosecutor that we had talked about in episode one. Right. Uh, that was involved in the case of the death of the two boys. So get your head around this, right? This is what we're saying, people. This is why this case is mind blowing to me. Mm-hmm. Is that we have later years down years down the line, right? Mm-hmm. In 1993, this stuff comes out, but years earlier, we have two boys that you know mysteriously die on train tracks. Mm-hmm. They think it's a, a traffic accident. And then they bring it to a grand jury, and that's brought by this guy, Dan, Dan Harmon. Dan Harmon, and he is the the lead prosecutor, and he's the one that's in charge of all the evidence and collecting all the evidence and getting his hands wherever. And years later, comes out that oh, he might have been on those tracks. 
We have an eyewitness that states that it was in fact Dan Harmon, that he could identify it, positively identify him as Dan Harmon because he knew Dan Harmon. He had some, he had a relationship with him. The man dated his mother. And we also have another eyewitness that points to Dan as well. Yeah. And we're going to get to her right after this quick beer break. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I 
am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. And I know the story just took a bit of a twist there at the last part. But oh, we, yeah, it did. We're going to add to that twist a little bit by introducing a person by the name of Charlene Wilson. Um, now, this woman, she's in her 30s, and she was known to be popular around town. Uh, but this is this would take place years after the investigation into the deaths of the boys. And this is during an investigation regarding criminal charges in an unrelated case. Uh, Charlene Wilson testified in front of a grand jury to, amongst other things, but the important thing here to our case is that amongst those other things, she testified that she had dated Dan Harmon for some time. Now, this would have taken place in 1987, the same year as the deaths. Right, and to call a female popular, let's just go ahead and put it on the table, Dan Harmon, was also considered popular. Yes, yes, he was. And uh, during this time, Dan Harmon, he was married, um, and she said that they dated probably seven or eight times during the course of that year, but the two of them had snorted cocaine on several of those occasions. Right, so not only was Dan Harmon popular, but he was also what I'd like to call whore. <laughs> yeah, because you can't, you can't have a girlfriend when you're married, or you shouldn't have a girlfriend when you're married. Well, the big deal here, Captain, is that not only does she say these things, but let's keep in mind, she's testifying to this, to these statements in front of a grand jury. So this is a big deal. This is not like you just said it to some news reporter or somebody on the street. No, Mm -hmm. this is now opening up a line of questioning that is probably going to open up to a line of investigation about the person that you're talking about by saying that the prosecutor, somebody that has been a prosecutor, was known to be using illegal drugs during the course of, of his tenure. Yeah, Dan is basically a coco. And this is going to lead us to a lot of the other questions regarding Dan Harmon. Now, the police get involved here because after this statement in front of the grand jury, they want to know more about not only Dan's drug use, but also this witness's drug use. Mm -hmm. And they also want to know what else she may know about things that were going on in the area around 1987 and 1988. So when they question Charlene Wilson, they start off by providing her with two prepared questionnaires. Um, And one of them is more directed toward Dan Harmon, and the other is more directed towards the deaths of Kevin and Don. Now, I'm going to read these for you. Uh, The first one starts off by asking, tell us about your drug dealings with Dan Harmon. And Charlene responds, he kept me high a lot. On occasion, I would make specific drops to different areas for him. Mm -hmm. I got high with him a lot. The next question is, if you were going to conduct an investigation on Dan Harmon, how would you do it? She states that she would go to his ex-wife, Rebecca. Then he would, then she would check his money background with a fine tooth comb. Mm -hmm. She then recommended going through drug task force records to see who they may have let off during his time when he was in power, as well as payoffs and drug trades and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. They asked her to list the five most important causes that would have led Dan Harmon selling drugs and using drugs. She states that it would be his family history, Also, letting people go that had enough money to buy him off would have led to his drug use. Uh, Drugs being confiscated but not actually being reported would be things that he might have been using or selling. And by letting big-time dealers off for free. She also stated that it's common knowledge of his drug use, and that had been common knowledge amongst many people in his circle for years. 
They asked her to write in detail one drug deal that that she had conducted with Dan Harmon. Mm-hmm. And and now, now this is going to be a little difficult because, like she said, I mean, she was high a lot of the time. Yes, and I imagine that there were probably more than one drug dealings that she was involved with with Dan Harmon, but she's going to give the answer to one of those. And the one that she states is one that took place at a place called Lee Bistro Club. Uh, she says Dan Harmon was there as well as Roger Clinton and herself. She said that this took place on a weekend night and that they had met there in a parking lot and did a cocaine exchange. The next question she's asked, do you know who else deals drugs with Dan Harmon? And now they've, they've pulled this information from this questionnaire because she's naming other people here, but she does name at least four other men. The next question is, While filling out this form, what were your emotions? And she states that she was scared, but she was also ready to come clean. She's worried about what Dan may find out that she is saying about him. Now, in the second questionnaire, as I said, is more related to the deaths of the boys. And it starts off by saying, tell us what you know about the circumstances that might have led to the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives. She states that she feels that Dan Harmon has more knowledge of the two boys' deaths than he has ever told. In late summer and in August, she says that she drove with Harmon to Alexander to meet with, she assumes, a man named Keith McCaskill to make a pickup. Now, she says this would have been around the time of the two boys' deaths. They ask her to write in detail what happened on August 22nd, 1987, from the time that she got up until the time she went to bed that evening. She states that she got up, she did some Coke and Crystal mixed. I mm-hmm. guess that she says that's called highballing. Uh, she cleaned up the house, left, and went off to find some more drugs. Later that afternoon, Dan wanted to show her a house, and they went in his car and they looked at a house in Alexandra. When they came back to her house, she said she ate something and put on some makeup. Dan then asked her to take a ride back out to Alexander with him, and he asked her to pull down the old quarry road. And he told her to wait in the car. He gets out and he leaves. She states that she stayed in the vehicle and she got high a while while she was waiting for him to come back. She said he suddenly then comes back shouting, let's go. They hop in the vehicle and they head back to her place. And that's when she is told to take a shower. Um, She's asking him if there's anything wrong. He's saying there's nothing wrong. uh, That they spent some time together that evening. He took a shower. She went to bed and he left. Well, he had to go back to his wife's house. Well, the final question on this questionnaire is they ask her, do you have any reason to be afraid of answering any of these questions? And she states simply, yes, I do, because Dan Harmon does not like me. In 1993... This would be in May. Uh, By this point, Dan Harmon has been charged with some drug possession charges, and he is currently awaiting trial. Now, I I think some of this is going to come to light here, Captain, because I think that at this point, Charlene Wilson might feel that she might be safe from Dan Harmon because he's facing these charges and he could potentially be going to prison. Right. Uh, But in in an interview with the state police department, she states that she knows quite a bit more about the night that the boys were killed. Oh, now it's getting kind of juicy. This is a statement given to Detective Brown. Charlene said that she had been with Dan Harmon and Keith McCaskill the night that the boys had been killed. She went with them to the train tracks. She said that when they arrived, there were two other men that were there as well. But all these men seemed to be agitated because there was a small band of kids that had tried to rip off the drop. Mm -hmm. See, now they were going there because there was going to be this drug drop. They were expecting to get three to four pounds of Coke and five pounds of weed. Well, and and like we said, there was drops that were made from trains, but also possible that the planes would come in and stop in a field, make a drop, and then fly to the airport. Mm -hmm. Now, she said that when the men got there, they stumbled upon these boys that were apparently trying to rip them off. Mm-hmm. And what had happened was they chased after the boys and they got away. Now, she said that they caught two of them and they were brought back to the tracks. This was Kevin Ives and Don Henry. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said that when the boys arrived, one of them was already deceased at that point. She then claimed that Keith McCaskill killed the other uh, one. No, 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 no. She's lying. 
She's lying. That's not the whole story. It's not the whole story, but it's it's also not the end of the story. So she would actually give multiple confessions to what had happened to the boys. Of that course night. she would. So, well, we kind of see it with that first part with the questionnaire, right? She kind of leads on that she and Dan Harmon know more about the boy's death than what Dan Harmon is willing to admit that he knows. Mm-hmm. And apparently is more than what she's willing to admit to knowing during filling out that questionnaire. Now, when she gives her second statement, this to Detective Brown, she now states that she one of the boys is dead. She knows exactly what had happened to them. Mm-hmm. One of the boys is dead when she's at the tracks, and the other boy is killed in front of her by Keith McCaskill. Well, we see another confession from her. And one thing I do want to point out here, though, Captain, is, you know, we've talked about this a lot. When we see multiple confessions from people, usually the stories can change change drastically Mm -hmm. that's not what takes place with charlene wilson no with charlene wilson basically what i think we get captain is we i think we get the story you know we get the tip of the iceberg with her with that questionnaire then we get pretty much the whole story right she's filling us in on more things now this this last let's call it confession it's basically the same story as the second with one little twist in there okay Okay, and the twist being that she actually stabbed one of the boys. <laughs> I knew it. I yeah. knew it. She said that she was quite high at the time. Um, Coked out of her mind. She had been hanging out with Dan Harmon most yeah. of the evening. Coke and fizz, that's what they call it. And you're doing coke and she said, sex. She said that after the boys were attacked, the one was already dead and the one was near death. That mm-hmm. the, the men that were there, they were, they were telling her to stab the boy. Well, yeah, because their thought process there is if she is a right now, she's just a witness Mm -hmm. and she's basically accomplice, but she can get away with that. Yeah. But if she stabs one of the boys, she's guilty Then she's also a murderer. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why they wanted her to stab the other boy. Yeah, she, she would be guilty as a witness, but now she's guilty as a as a conspirator to murder. Mm -hmm. Um, So she does admit to stabbing one of the boys in the back. Um, she does. Right. Right. And we have the evidence mm-hmm. of the stab hole. Mm-hmm. And so that's basically her confessions to, to that evening. Well, mm-hmm. that really, to me, we've pointed out quite a bit of other stories regarding that night that all kind of have some loose parts to them. But once you factor in Charlene Wilson's statement that she gives, she's kind of the glue. She's the glue kind of binding everything together. So I think we need to kind of, Using these stories, we we should be able to kind of walk through a timeline for the evening of August 23rd, 1987. Yeah, I mean, she's the glue that's made out of mainly cocaine. So we'll start off with the boys, right? Kevin Ives and Don Henry. Well, we've pointed out that if, if we take into account everyone's statements that were given to the police, and let's say we believe every statement that was given to the police, Well, this kind of points out that maybe the boys might not have been going out that night to actually go hunting. They might have been involved in something else. Regardless, they went out that night. We know they went out that night. This would be between 1230 and 1 a.m. They leave the house saying that they're going to go hunting. Mm -hmm. Well, we now have eyewitness accounts of other people being at the tracks that night. Yeah, and so the assumption here is that Kevin and Don got this plan in their head mm-hmm. that, you know, we buy pot and we don't have much money, but we know some guys that actually sell some stuff where we can make a bunch of money off of it. So if we could intercept one of these, you know, I'm not saying that these, these kids wanted to try cocaine. I'm saying that it's probably more likely that they're like, you know what, if we could get some cocaine and we probably know some people that would buy it, we can make some quick cash. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't even have to put any money up front because we're just intercepting a drop. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's some proof that they might have been looking to purchase cocaine or to to distribute it to other people to make some cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's if that in fact is true, and they did stumble into a situation where they overhear this big time drug dealer that they keep referring to as talking about a drop, then maybe this is some kind of plan that they devised. Do you think the big time drug dealer that they were talking about was uh, Dan? Yes, 
I actually do. Um, and whether they knew him by name or knew it to be Dan Harmon, I don't know. But I think that there might have been people that talked about this big time drug lord, this big time, mm, big time, play drug the bass, dealer. big time. Um, the thing here is the the reason being is if, if he's at the drop, I don't see why he's not the big time guy. You right. know, you know the way these things work. You usually have one. It's like a pyramid scheme. You have one guy that's doing pulling in a lot of the product. He's distributing it to a couple people who distribute it to a few more people, and the, the it gets bigger as you go down the pyramid there, and it spreads right. out the money, and most of the money goes to the top there. And we're talking about a drop. If we believe Charlene Wilson here, we're talking about a drug drop of she says three to four pounds of cocaine. Shit. And five pounds of weed, that sounds like a pretty decent drop to me, right? I don't know much about drug drops. Drug drops. Raindrops. Drop tops. But we also have Charlene Wilson's statement saying that she was at the tracks that night with Dan Harmon, Keith McCaskill, and a man by the name of Larry Rochelle. Now, who are these other two guys? So Keith McCaskill, he is a local bartender. He works at one of those places up by the county line, mm-hmm. and he's he's a pretty well-known bartender as well. He's he's a guy that's known to be a bit rough around the edges. He's known to be a drug user as well as a distributor. He's also a burly guy, right? Now, I don't know much about this Larry Rochelle guy, mm-hmm. um, but what I'm kind of assuming here, Captain, is that I think this Keith McCaskill is involved with moving drugs for Dan Harmon. And this Larry Rochelle is probably involved in the same thing. Or maybe this Larry guy is Shady Jerry. It's a possibility. You know I mean, like where he's like, uh, who's who's your friend? Uh, not not Larry, Jerry. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think that Larry. <laughs> I don't think that Larry's going to come forward and fess up to anything when he's involved in a murder. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a way to tell a story to cover his own ass. Well, we got to stay clear about this because now we have the two teenage boys. We have Don and Kevin at the tracks. And we also have Dan Harmon, Keith McCaskill, and Larry Rochelle. Now, we know some of these players here because we have two eyewitness statements. Mm-hmm. We have Charlene Wilson stating that Dan Harmon, Keith McCaskill, and Larry Rochelle are at the tracks. We also have... We also have Tom Newhouse, who's hiding in the bushes nearby, witnessing this event take place. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some statements that say that that other boy that we talk about later, Keith Cooney, might have been one of the boys in the bushes with Tom Newhouse. Now, the situation here is Newhouse witnesses these guys interact with each other. There seems to be some kind of disagreement. He hears the gunshot go off, and then the two teenagers flee. At this same time, we have Tom Newhouse who flees as well. Shortly after that, we have Don Henry and Kevin Ives who are seen near the store near Shrobe Road. Now, mm-hmm. this is with the uh, Keith Cooney as well. Right. He so states that he was there with the boys. boys. Right. So we have Keith Cooney's statement stating this, and he says that two police officers pull up. Mm-hmm. And at this point, that Keith takes off. Now, we also have the other two eyewitnesses. This is your buddy, Shady Jerry. Now, he's there. He says (laughs) that he sees two police officers. He also sees one boy take off on a motorcycle and two remaining teenage boys. We also have Ronnie Godwin's story, who basically says about the same thing. We have these two eyewitnesses that state that they see police officers beating up kids and throwing them in the back of a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Now, through these statements... One thing that we learn, we do learn who these officers are because of descriptions given as well as names given during some of these statements. Mm-hmm. And these officers are Jay Campbell and Kirk Lane, and they work for the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office. So now right. we got more we got more characters here. Well, let's just stop right there, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, look, some sometimes I get, you know, hate mail saying we don't need to recap. Hey, sometimes we do. Uh, we there's need, a lot we, going on right now. So here it is. These boys go out to the woods. Mm-hmm. We're assuming that maybe instead of hunting, that they're trying to get in on a drop so that they possibly could get the drugs, maybe sell the drugs. Who knows? Yeah, they're going to do a Robin Hood move. They, they've, they've identified some bad guys. They found a way that they could make some money off of this. They're yeah. going to in- intercept these drugs and sell them off to their friends. Right, and again, they're 16 and 17, so 
I think some of it is just like you you make some weird decisions. I don't, I don't even want to say bad decisions. You sometimes it's just a weird decision. So, anyways, they go out there. There's some kind of confrontation. They jet. They leave. Mm-hmm. Then they meet up with their th- friends. So now they're back at the store, and there's three of them. Mm-hmm. And then guess who rolls up? The police officers. Now, what we do know is if Dan Harmon was there, that you know he's a prosecutor, or he becomes a prosecutor after this event. Mm-hmm. He knows people of power. He's in a position of power. And if he's the big-time drug dealer, he is a position of power. Right, and he probably has people working for him within the system and out of the system. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like, you know, if these cops did what the eyewitnesses claim that they did, they were working for Dan Harmon. Yes, you're exactly right. And what, what takes place here, we don't know. We can't figure out if the police officers, if these two sheriff officers, if they intended to kill the boys, if they were told to kill the boys, but they were certainly told to go out and catch these boys. Right. You know, go find these guys that, that stumbled upon our, our operation here and bring them back to me. You know, they bring these boys back to the tracks. And at that point, this is where Charlene Wilson's statement carries through stating that one of the boys was dead by that time. Probably the one that was, you know, be- it was, beat in the face. Yes, he was He was hit in the face with, with the either the gun or a telephone receiver or both. And it could have been as simple as the orders were, bring these guys back to me, and then when they tried to apprehend these boys, it got out of control mm-hmm. because the boys knew what they were going to head back to. Right. They're heading back to a, a, a drug boss. And if you... Don't know much about it. All you then would know is Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So then you have to deal with the, the images of you have from Hollywood, mm-hmm. right? So you'd be scared out of your mind. So you're going to fight for your life. The boys are then brought back to the tracks. And according to Charlene Wilson, that's when the second boy is killed. Um, whether it be from Keith McCaskill or whether it be from her stabbing him. But then they place the boys on the tracks so that their bodies are destroyed and all the evidence would be destroyed as well. Well, that's five key players in this. And I would I would say, you know, to me, that all five of those players are involved in the death. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It, there, there's some moving parts here that, that we don't have um, – we don't have a solid statement that locks them into this timeline for the entirety of the timeline because we have this Keith McCaskill. He's a bit of a he's a bit of a rogue situation here, right, Captain? We don't know if he was actually at the tracks from the start to the finish of this mm-hmm. because there is a statement that says that Keith Cooney had went and and told Keith McCaskill what he had seen at the tracks and that he had fled from some police officers and that McCaskill then went down to the railroad tracks. The only person that states that McCaskill was there is Wilson, who says that she didn't see him until the time that the boys were brought back. Right. So my question here is I got a little bit of a question with this McCaskill, but you're exactly right. These are the five key players, but you know, did he only show up for the second portion of this? Mm hmm. Or was he one of the three men that Tom Newhouse saw on the tracks? Because the situation I think is what what is more likely is that both of those officers might have been there with this Larry Rochelle and Dan Harmon as a form of protection for this drop. Right. You know, you, maybe you leave one officer in the car because Newhouse only saw three guys on the tracks. You leave one guy in the car to keep it as a lookout mm-hmm. and the other officer walks along with you as a form of protection. That's the only thing that makes sense to me other than maybe because they can't make a radio call saying these two guys inter- interrupted our, our drop. Go our, catch our them. drug deal. Yeah. 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 So well, I th- our drug drop. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. If, I don't know if Keith McCaskill was actually involved in the murder or if he stumbled upon it later and then was terrified because he was dealing drugs for Dan Harmon and didn't want to throw him under the bus because Dan Harmon had a lot of a lot of stuff on him. Well, and on top of that, you just you have two dead bodies. You're going to go run in your mouth after you saw, you know, two dead bodies. Mm-hmm. So even if you didn't get there till after they're dead, then at that point you're you're maybe not talking because you're 
Well, he he wouldn't be talking if he's dealing for Dan Harmon, is my guess. If he's working for Dan Harmon as a drug dealer. Right, but some people are drug dealers and not murderers. Right, and that's that's why I'm I'm bringing up Keith McCaskill because I don't I'm not convinced that he was there for the actual murder of these boys. Right. I'm stating that it very clear he could have just stumbled upon the end result while the men were still there. And because he was dealing drugs for Dan Harmon and he was caught up in this drug ring, he didn't come forward with information. Well, and maybe it sounds stupid, you know, but you got five adults here. You got two teenage boys that, like I said, making a weird decision, maybe a dumb decision, you know, ultimately they paid the price for it. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to go out into the woods. If it wasn't just for hunting, if it was to disrupt a drug drop, then that that's a very bad decision, you know. Yeah. Um, if you're just going out and hunting, wrong place at the wrong time, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you saw some things that you shouldn't have seen. But it seems like there's a lot of weight that they were planning to do this. But they're teenage boys, yeah. sixteen and seventeen years old, and you got these adults that are some in the system, some out of the system. And they're just doing it for fucking money, anyways. Right. And so, and and I. <laughs> And maybe these guys, like I said, there's a big difference between a drug dealer and a murderer. But then once these guys thought they were caught, they had to do something about these boys. And they and they chose, I think, to murder them or knock them unconscious. Because the one that was beat in the face could have, you know, you know, drifted off into a coma for all we know. And then they lay him on the tracks. Doesn't matter that there's a train coming. He's not waking up right. from that. You know, and they might not have been fully dead by the time the, the trains hit them. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's most likely that they were, but either way, it's murder. Oh yeah, yeah, and and I agree with you. I think it's most likely that they were in fact dead when they were placed on the tracks. We have Wilson's statement, Charlene Wilson's statement, saying that she believed both boys to be dead when they were placed on the tracks. This also goes along with something we talked about in the first episode with the EMTs, what they what they thought about the blood as well as the train crew right. who were avid hunters that when they saw the blood of these boys it was not bright red. Right. It, it was not flowing. It, this blood wasn't, you know, it had they been killed while they were unconscious on the tracks, their their heart would have been pumping seconds before they were run over. This right. would have caused the blood to flow. This would have meant more blood evidence everywhere at that scene. There was a lot less blood than anybody with a trained eye expected to see. And it also was not the color that they expected to see. It was purplish in color. It did not look to be fresh blood. Right. So we have these five adults, but we also have these people, like I said, of power, people that are in the system. And that's what's so crazy because then, you know, once they rule it at accidental death, mm-hmm. which is probably ruled at accidental death because of the people that Dan Harmon knew. And so they can get this ruling, and then all of a sudden, when it when all this new information starts coming to light, and we're going to bring it in front of grand jury, guess what lawyer volunteers his services? He rises to the occasion, and he throws himself in the middle of the investigation. Not only throws himself in there, but he's going to be get, being the guy that's steering and directing the grand jury. And on top of that, he has the power. He's going to use the grand jury like his own set of bodyguards. Right, He's going to basically run a racketeering operation and a blackmailing operation through this grand jury. He can now subpoena whoever he wants in the area, mm-hmm. bring them in for questioning, submit them to questions to find out what they know, what they do or don't know, who they've talked to. And he can he can sift through the dirt, man. He can sift through the dirt and see what rises to the top to find out what people know and maybe who he needs to shut up. Right, but who's this lawyer's name? Well, this is Dan Harmon. Right, right. right. Once a prosecutor, twice a prosecutor, but clearly always a drug dealer. And always a douche canoe. And he's got two sheriffs, at least two sheriffs that we know of that are on the take. He's got drug dealers working for him. Mm -hmm. He's created his own little web, his own little operation, and he's done it all under the watchful eye of of the local police. Well, and I've never heard of a story where, okay, one accidental death, you know, that's what it's, they claim it's accidental death. Oh, it's not. Now we got to bring it to trial. Who brings it to trial? Dan Harmon. Years later, 
who's one of the number one suspects in the actual murder, Dan Harmon. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of that ever. I mean, it's freaking mind blowing, mm-hmm. and we're just getting, we're just getting warmed up. I mean, I mean, we should call part part three of four should just be called death. death. That's what it should be called. Yes, we certainly got so much more to get to. We'll get to that next week. We got more evidence. We got more crimes being committed. We're just getting started. Ray, what's our recommended reading for the week? Recommended reading this week. I'm excited about this one, Captain. It's called Dark Spell, Surviving the Sentence. Uh, This is by one of my favorite, and I believe one of the very best true crime authors out there, Mara Leverett. In this story, Dark Spell, it's about Jason Baldwin. Most of you will know him from the West Memphis Three. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's written about them before. This is kind of continuing on in the case. So if you're like me and you always want to read more about the West Memphis Three, pick up Dark Spell, Surviving the Sentence by Mara Leverett. You can do that by going to our website, truecrimegarage.com. You click on the recommended page. And you pick things up through our Amazon banner. And real quick before we go here, Captain, we have something to talk about regarding iTunes and and the episodes. We've had a little trouble. Okay, so all we do is we we have a host, and then our host sends it to iTunes. And sometimes it's just been coming up that there's an error. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we get it. Sometimes it's a download error. We're not really for sure. All we can do is do a request. Sometimes our host says, oh, well, we did something wrong. Sometimes it's on iTunes in. And it's it's very frustrating, and it, it basically keeps me up a bunch of times. But also, every time that we add an episode, mm-hmm. uh, it knocks off. Uh, normally, mm, West Memphis 3 Part 1. Mm-hmm. And so I have to go back in and add it. And sometimes I forget to. So when it disappears, it's because I forgot to. And just give me a day or so, and I'll fix it. Yeah, the the pro- we a prob- we apologize for the troubles and for the frustration, but it's just equally as frustrating on our end. We are aware of the issue. We've reported the issue many many times, mm-hmm. and it is in their hands now. Yeah, and I like to send them a bunch of video chat messages, me just screaming, "I'm I'm gonna put you in your face, <laughs> fix it." <laughs> Fix it now. <laughs> Anyways, thanks for sharing. Every time somebody shares it on social media, this it fills my heart. An angel gets its wings. <laughs> my my heart gets all gooey. All right. Much love to you. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.